Audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also come to ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The tax collectors and prostitutes will make it into God's kingdom before many righteous people. Tough stuff. Not hard to understand with the old noodle, but hard application. Before we go do that application, let me just say, I'm the lucky bloke who gets to follow all that. I mean, we're going to have a second offering here in a minute because I'm pretty certain most of you forgot to put the you're offering in the tray because you were enchanted by the bagpipe. So is that okay with you? I mean, goodness sakes, Jim Bell likes to pull out all the stops and he does it right before I preach a sermon. Whew, man, I think we already had church. We might as well just go have fried chicken. Don't you agree? And nothing does remind me of the Scottish as so much as fried chicken. Let us pray. Seek the heart of God for what we're doing today. Holy Spirit, fall upon this place and everywhere that my voice may be heard. This is indeed a challenging text because your faith is challenging. Your community is challenging. It's an invitation to true depth and maturity of being. And we fall short of that. I fall short of that all the time. So God, if my words are inadequate, let it at least be known that they're offered in grace and let them be received in grace. And through the power of your Son, our Savior, translate and transpose this story and these words into the hearts of my friends who could hear me in this sanctuary and everywhere they're watching on live stream or on demand. Your Spirit knows no boundaries. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
Before I go on any further, let me answer the question that many of you have already thought is, why is it Reverend Dr. Longbond's wearing his robe? I have an oral surgery happening Tuesday, and they put me on an antibiotic. And it turns out I'm really, really allergic to this antibiotic. So um, I, I actually have hives and lesions and stuff all over my body. And when you're hot, you tend to want more. You get itchier. So I ask you for forgiveness, uh, but it is a very uncomfortable state. And I ask for your prayers that all goes well and this goes away soon enough. Now, let's take a few deep breaths. The church I grew up in was a small country church. I've told many of you about it. We talked about it last time I preached. And we had a building expansion program. And all they really built was a, a hallway breezeway from the main part of the building to the new part. And they were making a new sanctuary, which looked exactly like the old sanctuary, only it could fit in a few more pews. It wasn't a very attractive sanctuary by, church's stand, by church standards. It was pretty plain. But one of the adornments that was to hang in the sanctuary was this cross. We had a craftsman in the congregation, and he was working on building this beautiful cross to put and mount in the baptismal pool. So the way that church structures a room is important because there's theology to our space. The theology of this room tells you that the word, the word happens before the table, but the table is the center focal reality of our worship. And behind it, there's a baptismal pool reminding us that we go through the waters of baptism to be long to the table. In that church, there was the altar and then the pulpit standing right over the altar, suggesting that the word comes prior, with priority over the table. And yet right behind it, again, there is the conversion pool of baptism. And that wall in there was plain, but they wanted to have the chief piece of religious art and iconography there because it was so central to the space and so central to our worship. And so this man worked really hard fashioning a beautiful cross. We had a Sunday evening singspiration, which is um, kind of an Appalachian style thing, where on one month, on a Sunday night, once a month, uh, people would come with their, their Christian backing tracks on, on tape, or they'd get the pianist to play, and they'd just sing songs, and everyone got a chance to sing. It didn't matter if you couldn't sing, you got a chance to sing. And at the end of that singspiration service, the senior minister invited us all up to the chancel. We were going to dedicate this cross that had been so lovingly crafted. We were going to install it right there in the baptistry. It had lights that would go on behind it to make it glow in the dark. And when nighttime would shine with light and all that, it was lovely. But as I was standing there on the chancel, not far from where Reverend Bond is, I, I look up and I see this piece of metal on the bottom of this wooden cross. In fact, it was brass. And as I looked a little closer, I could see there was writing on this brass. So then I went closer and it said this, this cross is in dedication of the Page family. I don't know if that strikes you as odd. It struck my 12-year-old mind as odd. The cross, the cross of the center focal reality and aspect of our worship was dedicated 
to a family who had started our church. We were related to him somehow, but we were often a distant part of the family tree. But this family, this family had things named after them everywhere. I thought it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to dedicate a cross to a family. Shouldn't it be the case as Christians that we realize that God has dedicated the cross to our life and our flourishing? That it is God the Father who dedicates the cross and Christ's sacrificial gift on it to us that we might flourish and have new life. God is using the cross as a dedication tool to us, our new family that he is making through Jesus. And Christians are ones who take that cross and dedicate it back to God or dedicate it to the imagination of their witness. We are to have cruciform-shaped lives. That means cross-shaped. That means that we go into the world with the kind of love that is behind the cross, not wrath, not judgment, but self-giving love and sacrifice. So why is it an honor or dedicated to a family member in this church? We like to name things after people. I really think what it does is it highlights the fact that faith Faith is one of those virtues that one can fool themselves into believing that they can possess. This is my faith. It's mine. My faith journey. My pilgrimage. My faith looks like this, not like that. And it's even said in a secular term uh, that I really find grating on my nerves, and that's uh, my truth. I'm just telling you my truth, man. Well, what, what do you mean your truth? Is it something you possess that no one else has claim on? No, faith isn't something we can possess, nor is the church. The church is not something that we can possess either. In fact, these two realities, faith and faith together, which makes the church, are things that are always offered as a gift to us. Let me say that again. Faith is a gift we receive Communion with the saints, involvement in the church is a gift that we receive. Therefore, we do not possess it. We do not claim authority over it. Rather, we let it take its claim on us. So Jesus, in the story we read this morning, he's been teaching. He's been healing and doing the works of service around the world. He's he's basically telling everybody, God is at work doing this brand new thing in me and through me for God's people. Anytime you read about Jesus, think about that God is just doing a new thing in the world with him. Anytime somebody's been healed, God is doing the new thing. God is making us aware of what life is like when God is in charge. When God is in charge, people are included. When God is in charge, brokennesses are healed. When God is in charge, there is no injustice. Things are put back right. And when God is in charge, we don't live in unforgiving ways. We live a life of grace. And so he comes to the temple one day, and there's people at the temple who, they've been there since the very beginning. They can probably name their ancestors who helped build the temple. And my great-great-great-granddaddy laid that brick right over there. Maybe they had his name attached to it. Maybe a plaque was on it. 
But nevertheless, it's the temple, so it's supposed to belong to the people of God. It's, it's that place where God is set to dwell in the midst of the holy people. And it's where you go and you make sacrifices for your forgiveness. It's where you go for study over the scrolls. It's where you go and you have fellowship with one another. It's where life happens, right in the center, in the heart of the people of God. And it's right there in a room, in the holiest of holies, that God is said to dwell. And Jesus comes to this place and he has been preaching things and doing things that have been making the people get mighty uncomfortable. And so they ask him, indeed, they demand of him an explanation. How dare you? In whose authority do you come say these things? Uh, who gave you the charge to do these things? How dare you? That little church I grew up in, we had a senior pastor there for 30 years. And when he retired, we set out to find somebody who would fit the congregation. We were always interested in seeing what their person's, what that new uh, pastor's vision would be. We always just bug him to death about it. What's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the church? And can I tell you the truth? I think most people don't want vision for the church. I think we say we want vision, but they, no, we don't. Because as soon as this guy, this is my first example of seeing this in churches all over the place. As soon as he put together this really interesting plan for our church, where it was located, how to reach the neighborhood. He did the work of moving Sunday school classes from this room to that room. And, and he made this space for the children's hall, a wonderland for kids. And when people came to church one Sunday and found out that they moved their class from this door to the room next door, people were fit to be tied. On what authority did he do that? He's a Johnny come lately. He's a Johnny come lately. He didn't build this church. He didn't uh, be part of the church as we split from another church over the, over the use of guitars and music. No, no, he's, a, he, he, he's just now showing up. What does he have to say to us? Whose authority, Jesus? We want to know. Well, Jesus then does what he does so beautifully. Is he, he turns the tables right round on him, doesn't he? Jesus says, okay, John the Baptist, my cousin, he came to you baptizing. I want to know one question. Is he baptizing the heavenly baptism or is it an earthly baptism? And then that was a bit of a thinker. They got together, they huddled up and they said, well, if we say that the that baptism of John is from the world's perspective, if it's just a worldly ceremony of cleansing, then we're saying we don't believe what John was up to, but we all like John, don't we? Yeah, I like John. John's right. Yeah, everyone really dug John. But if we say that John's baptism comes from God, then we actually have to say that we listen to John. And John told us that his little cousin was coming around and he was the one to do a new thing on behalf of God for God's people. Amen. So Jesus caught them in a trap. And then he tells them a story. It's real straightforward. Hard to apply. He said, basically, there's people invited to work. A group of people didn't want to go to work. They sat at home. And then he invited another group of people, and they didn't go at all. But the first group, they just showed up late. They were Johnny-come-latelys to work. He says, which is better, those who come late or those who don't come at all? And you can see these teachers go, the one 
the ones who came late, Jesus, because they knew they were getting snared by his intellectual trap. And Jesus then lays the boom. Jesus begins to say the things that makes religious people like you and me just downright cringe. It makes us angry. It makes no sense to us. But Jesus tells us the tax collectors who were thieves and robbers and prostitutes. Oh, dear heaven, prostitutes too. Some of these folks are going to get in the kingdom of heaven before you, oh, holy ones. Faith cannot be possessed. It can only be received as a gift. We have faith because we have received grace from God revealed in Jesus. And the faith is the call to a radical commitment based on that gift of grace. And we can never possess the church. I know we use the word my church a lot. But we can't possess it. It doesn't belong to me more than it does to you because I'm the pastor. No, as Dr. Bricker, our founding pastor, would say, and he said to the city of Atlanta, you may not belong to this church, but it belongs to you. We want you to belong to this church. We want you to come and walk the pilgrim path of faith with us. We think we're doing a pretty cool uh, job at teaching people. We think we have some pretty exciting opportunities and we love the community here. We want you to be a part of it. But if you're not, then we belong to you. And it's given away. Friends, it's Heritage Sunday. 96 years ago, we dedicated this sanctuary. So I want you to think about this place. And I want you to think about the legacy and the heritage that we truly stand on as we go about trying to be the church of this era. People used to live here that don't live here any longer. For perhaps thousands of years, there was a group of people called the Creek of the Muscogee Nation. They used the ridgeline along Peachtree Street to travel. In fact, when people come down to Atlanta for the first time and they go, oh, every street is named Peachtree, their assumption is it's called that because there's uh, this thing, the peach state. Georgia is somehow the peach state, even though we're not the number one producer of peaches any longer. It must be about the local agriculture, right? No. No, m most historians think that the Muscogee had a word Pitch tree. Pitch tree was the name of pine trees. And ever since I moved to Atlanta 10 years ago in the first weekend of December, 10 years, can you believe that? 10 years ago, my mind has been blown by how many pine trees we have all around us. This was pitch tree. The Muscogee knew the land. In the 1830s, like so many Native American tribes, our government told them to leave and pushed them out to Oklahoma and other reservation lands, uprooted them from their traditions, uprooted them from the land itself. Not two weeks ago, though, I'm told that Adair Park, south on the Beltline Trail, dedicated a section of itself to the Muscogee people. They planted indigenous plants, they brought in Muscogee artifacts, and the head, uh, uh, the chief of the Muscogee people, was here with his chief of staff, and in making their comments to the media, they boldly said, this is our land. This is our land for generations. And then they said, 
we know how the light comes through the trees. We know how the seasons affect the soil. Think about what we have here and think about the costliness of it for us to be here now. About 30 years after the great migration called the Trail of Tears, we had the Civil War. And I talk about that a lot with you, about how from the corner here of Peachtree and Spring to the hospital over to Howell Mill, this was the battle site for the Battle of Peachtree Creek where brother against brother fought, where countrymen against countrymen fought, where the soil was painted and stained by blood of division. I've often walked this property, and I dare you to as well, and just sometimes ask yourself the question, how many people lie wounded on our own piece of property? How many people's lives were lost right here? Their voices still speak from the grave. That something happened here before we were here. At that time, Midtown was a bit different. There was a, a shanty town down by 10th and Piedmont called the Tight Squeeze, where people who had no means could try to eke out an existence. Think about the legacy. Think about the heritage we have in being a community that's called to this place. And then it was in 1925 when we had a visionary pastor, Dr. L. O. Bricker. And he was a widower. And he married Mr. A.G. Rhodes' daughter, who was a divorcee. And because he married her in a church service, this church had an enlightened, as Reverend Bell would say, an open mind towards remarrying people who had been divorced. In 1925 in Atlanta and before, you most likely, if you were to get remarried again, you most likely went to the courthouse. But here, we had this open attitude towards marriage. We wanted to, to let people get married, find redemption after broken marriages, and see if there couldn't be something stronger built. And then we wanted to, to pour into the lives of newly married people. And we wanted people to be able to have access to this building. Back in the day, anyone could get married here. Anyone could bring their minister. And Bricker says, I imagine women in their calico dresses standing in front of the great altar at Peachtree Christian Church. I'm no fashion expert, but I think calico is not supposed to be very fine in terms of what it is. He was saying that even if you couldn't afford it, you could be married here. But what's better than all that to me? So after Mr. Rhodes took Dr. Bricker and others around Europe looking for inspiration for this place. And after he had given the land this, uh, that we sit on to us, and after he furnished the, uh, help, well, the church furnished the inside of the sanctuary, those founders of our church sat down to pen who we are. Who are we and how can we tell about ourselves to the community? And they wrote and said, we are a cathedral for Atlanta where no unkind word would be said about one's race or religion here. The doors were open at all times for prayer. You could find safety and shelter under its loving arms. And here you can come in tragedy and be with God. Here you can come in joy and be with God. But this is a place for the city. And it's a place that has an invitation on our back window where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. This is a place for the people of God. Our founders wanted it to be that way. And by God, it's the reason why I'm here now. 
we start to see amidst some of the ugliness around the space and land, we start to see buds that delight. We start to see the fresh flowers coming from cold ground. Just simply with that desire that our founders had in this church. Now, I will tell you that it's not a simple portrait of ease. Nothing is in the church. If this church was established in 1925, where we signed the charter at the Wimbish House down the street, which is the Atlanta Women's Club, about 400 strong, and this place was then dedicated in 1928, what other institution was really profound in Atlanta at that time? The worst iteration of the Ku Klux Klan was formed and founded in Atlanta in the 1920s. The worst iteration of it. And I've been told, I've talked to pastors, and I've talked to historians around town. They say there's no possible way that the mainline churches up and down this street didn't have somebody who was involved with the Klan coming into their worship or coming and finding a home there. Oof. You know, what I'm really describing is I'm describing some difficulties that the church has to deal with because when I think of the church, I think of two words side by side. I think of beautiful, ugly. Beautiful because it represents God and God's grace and it's an invitation for all. Beauty because it, it is a taste of the kingdom to come. Beauty because it's supposed to be a peace-passing place of forgiveness and love and inclusion around a table. Ugly because it has people involved. I was listening to Stephen Colbert, the comedian, late night talk show host. If you didn't know this, he's a committed Catholic and his dad was a Catholic intellectual and he was raised in Charleston, South Carolina. That's pretty good, I thought. In one of them northern states. And he talks about how he would go fishing with his family for oysters and they would come in clusters and he said, because the question put to him was this, actually. How can you still be so fervently committed to a church and to a faith where there was a sex abuse scandal that is still not even all known about? How can you uh, celebrate that faith when women can't be priests or any number of prohibitions that the church has that don't seem popular with today's cultural uh, milieu and ethos? And he said, just like fishing for those oysters, you open up an oyster and sometimes you find a delicious, sweet, good meat. And that's what you eat and you take in. But there's a whole lot of oysters you come across when you open them up. There is no sweet, delicious meat. It's rancid mud and dirt and spoil. And you chuck those aside. He made the claim that he can maintain his faith because he's maintaining what is beautiful. And if something is ugly, he gets rid of it. Or he doesn't take it into his own faith experience. Why am I mentioning all this? Why am I talking about beautiful, ugly in the church and things that have happened in our society? Because Christians, if nothing else, are to be truth-tellers. Christians are called to be truth-tellers, and we're called to bear witness to history. We're called to bear witness to injustice and speak out against it, and we are called to bear witness to grace and speak out for it. 
We are called to be people who speak our truth. We did not make ourselves up, nor did we buy this land here ourselves. We inherited and were given this space to worship on. And we stand on the shoulders of many faithful generations of this church. And then those shoulders are put upon more difficulty historically and cultural. The point is, no matter what it is, whether it's our faith life or whether it's our church expression, these are things that we cannot possess we cannot own because once you do, you turn them into ideologies. You turn them into ideologies of comfort. You see, what happens is you tend to, you tend to start making faith. I'm coming down here. You tend to make faith comforting. You tend to make church comforting. Like faith or, or our church is, is like a really nice weighted blanket. And you're on the couch cozied up with woolen socks and you got hot chocolate chip cookies and chocolate milk. But wait, wait, that's not what faith is. Faith says be very uncomfortable by the fact that people who are called prostitutes and sinners may make it in before you. Faith is hard. We, we, have, a, we have a salesperson for this faith, Jesus, who's doing this new thing, who says, you want to follow me? You're going to have to give up your life. Faith isn't easy. And it's not meant to comfort us like this. Now, it is meant to bring us peace. It is meant to bring us peace, to know that no matter what pain and sorrow and torture, no matter what difficulty we face, we still have a God who's there and not silent. We have a God revealed in Jesus who identified with the greatest pains imaginable. Shameful death. God has identified with you and me by going all the way down to the lowest of the low and from the inside of the belly of the earth, like the belly of a whale, comes forth new life. That's how faith comforts. It's not simply just to make me feel good because this is the thing we do every Sunday or, or, or give me some sense of hope, but I believe it, therefore Jesus will do it, like help your football team win on Saturday or find you a parking spot. At Walmart, friends, we don't own this. We don't possess it. But this church is something that, if you're willing to let it, it lays claim on our lives. And as it's laid claim on many others' lives, beautiful has come out more than ugly tenfold. The CWF, Christian Women's Fellowship, is a robust ministry in our church of women who get together and raise money for outreach, who go visit the sick, who provide parties for people. In fact, during COVID, Peachtree Christian Church doesn't get through COVID without CWF. It, it, no shocker there, the church doesn't exist without women. Men say amen. It's true, the church does not exist without women. Women make it happen. Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasting used to make its home here. We had a hospice out in Gwinnett County that is now a place for dementia care. We have a place for dementia care in our basement. We have had forged historic relationships with the temple. And when that place was bombed, they were invited here to worship. And yeah, there might have been clan members walking up and down the street at Peachtree. And maybe they felt comfortable here. But I'll tell you what, Dr. Burns, one of our founding pastors, signed a document with other pastors uh, for civil rights and against hate. Here in Atlanta, his name's right there on the list as they stood up as a white church for the plight of people, our brothers and sisters who are not white. It was, 
a beautiful legacy, a beautiful heritage, and we get to receive it. We get to receive its gifts. We get to receive the gift of this space with these windows. Now, now hold on a second. Let me tell you about these windows. They are beautiful, amen? They tell a story, don't they? Is it true that we can idolize them? Is it true that we can make an idol of our building? You bet your bottom dollar it happens. But the beauty of it is that when you drive by the street, the building itself is a testimony to God. It speaks to the society. It says, lift up your eyes. Don't lower your head. Lift up your head in courage and pride in the pride that you're trying your best to live before Jesus Christ in pride that Jesus says, I'm calling you one of my own in pride that you get to try your best to share that grace with other people. Don't look down, but look up and stand strong, my brothers and sisters. This is the legacy you're given. So live into the legacy, church. Interesting thing about these windows is right now you can go to Jerusalem and you can go into a cathedral, St. George's Cathedral, and you can find a window that looks just like ours because we gave a window there. Your church gave a window to a church in Jerusalem. There, there, there's a little church in Mexico that Peachtree built. There's one in Darjeeling, India that the church has built. Countless benevolence has happened here. Countless people have been ordained for Christian service here. The, the arts and our youth program, people learning how to use music and acting to praise God. It happens here. Discipleship happens here. This is the beautiful legacy. This is the beautiful heritage. And we don't possess it. You don't own it. It's always already a gift. You don't have a private faith. You don't, you don't, you don't. It's always a gift from Jesus Christ and a gift to be wed together with the faith of everybody else in your community, your co-pilgrims who are walking the path in faith. Now, here is the question, and I'm going to tell it to you. With the legacy you've been given that you can't possess, how do you plan on handing it off? We can't own it because it's always a gift, so we pass the gift along. How do you plan on giving that gift for the next century? That this place would be a testimony to the world, that it would be a cathedral with open arms to people, that people might simply find the love of Jesus Christ here. How will you see it through into its next 100 years? 